with Jesus commencing the resurrection age and interrupting this great timeline. We've been thinking of the shaded period of the, or the resurrection age while the word continues. The resurrection age is going to go beyond the world. But at the moment, we are in that age, A.D., Anno Domini, the, the, Domini, the year of the Lord, we're in at the moment. During which time, our lives and our world change for the better, but only slightly. There is a slight improvement that has happened over the last 2,000 years. There's a slight improvement in your life here and now. Now, if we just concentrate on that period from Jesus till the return, we see how it has happened. That is, Jesus is our advocate above in the resurrection age. He has risen to heaven to advocate for us, to argue for us, to plead for us, to stand as our representative, as, as our barrister, as our solicitor before the judge of all the world. But because he has risen, he has also sent his spirit into this world and he is an advocate as well. He is advocating for the cause of Jesus in our lives and in our worlds. So we have these two advocates of the resurrection. Jesus who has ascended to heaven and the spirit whom he has sent to earth. Jesus advocating our cause before the heavenly father. The spirit advocating Jesus' cause to the world and to our hearts. And this spirit has moved us, works in us, to put off the old and to put on the new, to put to death the old, that we might live the new life. And that putting off, inspired, innovated, empowered by the Spirit, is what pushes us to be changing in this world. But as we change, it always arouses hostility. And the more we change and the more we call upon the world to change, the more the hostility that comes upon us. There, that's a nice little diagram because it actually sums a whole series of talks, doesn't it? In fact, if I could give the whole series of talks that quickly, why did I take so long over the last few nights? Because you wouldn't have understood that diagram without all the talk is the answer to that. Now, what are we going to talk about tonight? Living as the lords over the nations. Here is your outline. No, I hadn't forgotten. And while you've got your outline, let me tell you about a few books. I thought tonight, just for a change, I would tell you of this incredible uh, author called Tony Payne, who has written a book called Prayer and the Voice of God by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. And Guidance in the Voice of God by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. And Pure Sex by Tony Payne and Philip Jensen. I don't know how he got the first name on that one. That doesn't seem right somehow. J comes before P. And sometimes he couldn't get there, so this one is written by Paul Grimmond and Philip Jensen, called The Archer and the Arrow. Now, just to demonstrate that it has been known that I have written something, this one is just by Philip Jensen. <laughs> Pure, unadulterated, me. <laughs> what are these books about? Well, there is a theme that I've heard of tonight called guidance. And out of those endless Miji conferences on, gu on guidance has come this book on guidance and many of the questions you ask me about what I do in life in terms of marriage, in terms of church, in terms of mission field, in terms of work etc. they are in this book. What does God want me to do in this lifetime? Guidance and the voice of God. It's a very important voice. Very important voice for us to hear is the voice of God. The parallel one to it is prayer and the voice of God. What is prayer about? Why do we pray? Does God answer prayer? How do we pray? What does it mean to pray? Is prayer thanksgiving? Is thanksgiving prayer? The answer is no. Prayer is always asking. But if it's always asking, is it right to always ask God? Do we honour God by asking or are we being self-centred? Prayer is a really, really important subject that most Christians, we pray but are uncertain about it. Prayer and the voice of God. 
the pure sex book is not like the love, sex and marriage talks. The love, sex and marriage talks are addressed to Christians to tell you how to be godly with love, sex and marriage. When we tried to put it into a book, we couldn't do it. Tony wrote the book and when we read it together, we decided it wasn't publishable, so we didn't. So Tony, bless him, sat down and wrote this book, which is why his name comes first on this one. And this book on pure sex explains to you the culture in which you live, explains to you the sexual revolution of which you are heirs and inheritors. That is, the way your grandparents lived concerning sex was radically, dramatically different to the way in which your generation lives in regard to sex. And the pressures you're under, they weren't the pressures I was under, they certainly weren't the pressures my father was under. We live in a different world. Where has that sexual revolution come from? Well, it's come from atheism. How successful has it been? No, it's been an unmitigated failure. What lies behind it? Because many of our questions about sex, we don't realise the history of sex. And this gives you the background and helps you to be able to argue on the subject of sex with non-Christians. For those of you who would be preachers, here is the book on preaching, The Archer and the Arrow, that Paul Grimmond wrote with uh, me in this last uh, couple of years. And it just goes through preaching. It's also very helpful for those of you who are ever going to listen to sermons, which is all of you, because it would help you to know what preachers are trying to do, because then you might find out how valuable it is to listen to the sermons. It might also help you see that the preacher you're listening to is no good and you need to move church. So can I encourage you, here is a book about why preachers preach, how preachers preach, what are preachers trying to do when they preach, and all young men who are going to be preachers read it. And this one, there's two volumes of this one, uh, this one by God's word. Each week I write an essay. Um, I haven't written my own this week, um, tomorrow morning's the deadline. Um, <laughs> each week I write an essay about life, looking at life through the Bible. They're just 1,000 word essays. And so here's a collection of 60 of them over a period of time. And there's another volume two, which is another 60. And it's about time we have volume three because I've done some more since then. And it's just, that's exactly what they are. They're weekly 1,000 word essays about life, about anything that I've read in the newspaper, seen on television, tumbled across in the streets. It could be, well, it's Happy Australia's Day, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake, The Objects of Reality, A Drought for God's Word, Why Celebrate Father's Day. You never know what I'm going to think about next. It's just... <laughs> there was a book written by Jerome K. Jerome called The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow, and they've already got that title, so I had to say by God's word. Um, <laughs> It's how to view the world through the glasses of the scriptures. That's what that's about. That's what it does for you. Uh, good Christmas presents for parents and the like who are not really Christian or unsure about, you know, who are these people you're hanging around with and the like, because it gives them some sense of the reality of Christian living. Well, you all got the outline down? It's very simple, wasn't it? Here we go now. One of the most unpopular groups in our society... Oh, we're going late tonight. Okay, let's get going. One of the most unpopular groups in our society are missionaries. Missionaries smack of those intolerant, culturally insensitive monsters. Arrogant, ugly, cultural imperialists that cause our intellectual and media to cringe. What right have they or anyone to go and tell others how they should live? or to interfere with another culture, or to destroy the way of life of others who are quite happy until the missionaries came along. They have a history of dressing up natives in European clothes, forcefully introducing a totally foreign language and custom upon them, all sanctioned because they think it comes in the name of God. And what about learning from their gods? Indigenous people have often been more spiritually attuned than the missionaries who were crudely destroying their deep spiritual traditions. And so it goes on and on and on in the liturgy of the tutorial class and the media attacking the whole concept and history of missionaries. You will hardly ever get a positive word about missionaries on any university campus in Australia or in any part of public media. 
Of course, the reality is very different to all this. But we have very little opportunity to hear the reality, so strong is the censorship of our land. In general, there are two kinds of answers. There's the historical answer and there's the theoretical answer. Deal with the historical one first. We need to attack the historical revisionism because it has just gone far too far. So missionaries have been in the forefront of, of culture, but they have actually been in the forefront of cultural sensitivity and understanding. If you want to study linguistics, the people who know most about it these days are the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which is the Wycliffe Bible translators. Nobody has researched, studied and understood the nature of cross-cultural linguistic work more than they. If anything, I think they're too sensitive myself. But they are the ones who are working around the world to get people to understand their own language system, to put it into a written form, to teach them to read it, to produce books for them in their own language. Nobody else is doing that, except the missionaries. They're not insisting that the people learn English. They're going out and learning unwritten languages. Little groups, 120 in one village in New Guinea, and a man spent seven years of his life learning the language, creating a written script for it, writing the language, publishing books for them in their language for 120 people. The culturally insensitive who have written roughshod over the indigenous people of the world were not the missionaries, but the non-Christian materialists, whose industry, exploitation, developments, governors and multinationals have gone about destroying local culture, all for profit, all for empire. They're the ones who have destroyed the world, those who sell tobacco, those who have inflicted alcohol, those who have inflicted modern Western media, they're the ones who have destroyed the, the third world. Often the only people to stick up for the locals against the mad rush for economic progress have been the missionaries. They're the ones who have protected the locals and their culture. See, what do you make of a man who, working with an indigenous group near a large and expanding imperial western power, learnt the language of the locals? then taught them to read it and argued their case in the new powers of society and sought the rest of his life to protect them in their courts. His name was Lancelot Edward Threckold and he lived and worked in Newcastle in the 1820s amongst the indigenous of Australia before anthropology had even invented at the University of Liverpool. A Christian man was doing everything that the anthropologist would say is a right thing to do to protect the locals. An evangelical, Bible-believing Christian missionary, a Congregationalist minister from the London Missionary Society. Uh, John Harris, if you're interested in the indigenous missionary work, John Harris has written a book called One Blood, another one called We Wish We Had Done More, outlining the history of the missionary endeavour amongst the indigenous peoples of Australia. But it's little wonder that there is a higher percentage of Christians amongst Aborigines than there is amongst any other group in Australia, given the enormous care and love that missionaries have given to the indigenous Australians. The enlightened last 30 years have seen no improvement in the case and state of Indigenous Australians. Noel Pearson, a leading Aboriginal, wrote in 2002, as the public resources are used now, total collapse is just avoided, but nobody expects anything positive ever to emerge from our direction. The common sector is just a life-sustaining drip feed and we hover in limbo indefinitely. Mr Pearson attacked what he called a romantic leftist notion of community in which a uniformly equal group of people were devoted to the common good embodied in some official communal structure. It never was there. He spoke and had underwritten the approach 
to Aboriginal affairs for 30 years but didn't reflect social reality. It had created apathy that crushed and weakened initiative. First thing we need to do, friends, is serious historical research about missionaries and about their impact in third world. If you're a historian, there's a whole world of study out there for you to do to change the whole academic dialogue and storyline, which is so profoundly wrong. Secondly, there are theoretical considerations. You see, what makes any culture sacred and unchangeable? What makes any culture superior? You see people acting inhumanly. You see people blindly enslaved to cruelty and you're not allowed to help them because their culture is sacred? There's still a great belief in the noble savage. There was a series of films, a couple of films made a few years ago, or many years ago, very funny films. Um, The Gods Must Be Crazy. Remember The Gods Must Be Crazy? Very funny, wasn't it? The sequel wasn't as funny. Here was a man, simple and good and happy, until a Coke bottle dropped into his world. And then he had to walk to the end of the world to get rid of it because it created unhappiness. Man left alone without any Western influence, lived in harmony and beauty and peace and baloney. It was not like that. It never has been like that. This is sentimental nonsense. Before missionaries came, as I mentioned yesterday, in India, Suti was practised, where wives were burnt on their funeral pyre of their husbands. Cannibalism was practised across the world, here in Australia, as well as elsewhere. Pedophilia was normality. Child sacrifice was practised. Cultures are not sacred. They're not unchanging. They're not something that you must protect. It cannot be right to have women burnt at the stake. It cannot be right to sacrifice little children in order to bring the sun god up today. It cannot be right to marry off eight-year-old girls to dirty old men. It cannot be right just because it's your culture. You can say Noel Pearson is a right-wing ideologue, but ultimately, some years later, we've had to intervene in New Testament, in New Testament, I've got NT here, in the Northern Territory. (laughs) We had to intervene in the Northern Territory in order to protect children. But the right-wing intervention still insists on selling grog to the whites of the Northern Territory community, as if the Aborigines are the only people who can't handle drink, the only people who are guilty of abusing children, as if white men never do it, as if white men never get drunk. What the sacred culture school is talking of is not tolerance or sensitivity, but moral relativism, which therefore sounds tolerant, You can do what you want to do, I will do what I want to do, we all do what we each like to do. It sounds very nice and tolerant, but it imposes cruelty and wickedness and is itself a cultural imperialism. It's like the silly idea of the Western world that we will be able to dump democracy on the Muslim Middle East and they'll all be happy. Egypt has shown how silly the idea is, hasn't it? Democracy just can't be imposed on people who are not democratic in their thinking, their philosophy, their culture, their way of life. It was never going to work. It was as silly as the 19th century European idea of dividing up Africa with lines on the map and making nations when people don't live in nations in Africa, they live in tribes. The the imperialism of our superior atheistic ways is huge compared to what the missionaries who actually go out and live with the people. We really do need to change the whole story of missionary work. Ultimately, the rejection of missionaries comes from the rejection of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
For if Christ is risen from the dead, then the judgment of the world has commenced. As Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If Christ is not risen, there would be no Christian missionaries. But because he has risen, we cannot remain silent, but must tell all people before the day of judgment comes upon them. Remember that final scene of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Turn with me in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Picking up verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Notice this was the 11, the 11 original disciples who are becoming the apostles. Notice that they now do something that no Jew would do. They worshipped the man who was before them. Notice also, but some doubted. The New Testament is not a sales pitch. The New Testament is a historical book. If it was a sales pitch, you would never mention that the original 11 doubted. There they are, face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and they're still doubting. But the New Testament's concerned with the truth, and the truth was some of them still doubted. For while the Advocate was about to go to heaven, the Advocate from heaven, the Holy Spirit, hadn't come to them yet, so that they were assured of the truth of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' last teaching in verse 25, uh, sorry, in Je Jesus' last teaching here is, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Previously, back in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel, he described God, he said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. But now he is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me. And now that the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, has all authority to judge all people for all time, now that he has all authority, what does he want people to do? He's in authority. He can tell them what to do. What does he tell them to do? As you go, make disciples of all nations. It's an extraordinary passage because it ends the ambivalence of the Bible. Ambivalence means having two-minded, double-mindedness of the Bible. Because throughout the Bible there was a double-mindedness and ambivalence towards other nations. You see it throughout the Old Testament and Israel. Remember, the word nations is translated Gentiles in the Bible. The Gentiles are the nations, same word. From the beginning with Abraham, there is this ambivalence. There's blessing and cursing. Come back to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Genesis 12, early part of the Bible, easy to find. Every Bible flipper and non-Bible flipper can find Genesis 12. Even those on the phone can find it. Now the Lord, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Here it is, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Some will love Abraham and they will receive the blessing. Others will oppose Abraham and they will receive the cursing. Their future will be determined by their attitude towards Abram. On the negative side of this ambivalence, there are four things to note. There's the history of conflict, firstly. You see it in Egypt. They're put into slavery. The Pharaoh oppresses them. 
You see it when they go into the promised land, the battle of Jericho, the battle of Ai, the battles that they had to fight and the opposition they had as they came into the promised land. You see it when the Assyrians came from Nineveh and came down and conquered the ten northern tribes and scattered them all over the world. You see it a couple of 120 or so years later when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came and also opposed them. And from that point onwards, the Jews were under constant oppression by one conquering group after another. The Greeks, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the Greeks, then the Romans came. There is always this history of conflict in Israel. Secondly, there are the legal requirements of Israel that are negative. That is, you're not to have anything to do with the other nations. You're not to marry them. You're not to eat their foods. You're not to eat with them. You're to have no, they are to have no easy access to citizenship. They mustn't enter the temple. You know, outside nearly every church in the world, there's a big sign saying, all welcome. Outside the temple in Jerusalem, there was a big sign saying, any Gentile who walks past this spot has no one to blame for his death except himself. Not really all welcome. <laughs> kind of different message you're being given there. There was this legal requirement of negativity towards the nations. Thirdly, there was the attitude of the Jews towards the nations, which you can still see in uh, the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 2, Paul writes in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Uh, the very meaning of the word Gentile comes to mean sinner. If you're a Gentile, you're a sinner. If you're a sinner, you're bound to be a Gentile. Or you can see it in Ephesians chapter 4, which I read to you. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do the Gentiles walk? Well, in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's how Gentiles walk. We, we don't want to be rude to our, our friends, but and our neighbours and our fellow citizens and we do not want to think ourselves better than others but friends how do your friends walk what manner of life is there as they drink as they as as they dance as they take different substances as they pour over pornography as they sleep around and easily hook up with each other as they cheat and lie what kind of as their greedy follow their careers and to try and get more money on fast deals what kind of life do you think is there outside in the gentile world and then fourthly there's the straight opposition to Yahweh and his Messiah. We looked earlier today in our seminars at Psalm 2, didn't we? Come to that psalm. Wonderful psalm, Psalm 2, one of the most important parts of the Bible, Psalm 2. It's the kind of topic psalm of the whole book of Psalms. It's a key psalm in terms of being quoted in the New Testament. It's the rule Britannia psalm of the Old Testament. You know how the Brits in their last night of the proms always sing rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, Britain will never, never be slaves. It's a lot of nonsense, isn't it? They don't rule the waves, haven't since the Second World War. In fact, they couldn't manage it in the Second World War either. You know, and never be slaves. Well, they joined the, the common market, which is going down the economic gurgler. I mean, it's a silly thing for them to be singing, but they love singing it. Well, Psalm 2 was like that because Psalm 2 is we're top king. And they sang it all the way through the Assyrian conquest, the Babylonian conquest, the Greek conquest, the Roman conquest. They're still saying, we're top dog nation. It's that kind of psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the nations are all in opposition to God. To Yahweh, the Lord, spelt in capital letters there, you'll notice, because it's Yahweh in the original, and his anointed, the word anointed means the Christ. That is, the nations are negative. 
The Jews are negative about the morality of the Gentiles. The nations are negative about God and his Messiah. There's been a history of conflict and the Jews are legally required to be different. That's one side of the ambivalence. But there's a positive side to the ambivalence. That's why it's an ambivalence. See, God is the God of all the world. He's the creator of the nations. And he created not Abraham or Israel, he created Adam in his image. All humans, not just Jews, not just Israelites, all humans are in his image. Secondly, on the positive side, he has chosen the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. Now, therefore, he says in Exodus 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, Israel stands between God and the nations as the priests of God for all the nations. And thirdly, the nations, when they see Israel keeping the law, will realise that it's true. Come with me to the reading we just had a little while ago that Elizabeth read for us in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy 4. For when you keep the law, the statutes... Verse 6, pick it up. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? My friends, the law of Israel was an extraordinary advance in the history of humanity. For it was Israel that built the rule of law into a society. Prior to that and outside of Israel, the rule was not the rule of law, the rule was the rule of the ruler. And when the ruler changed his mind, the law changed. But in Israel, the ruler was required to read the law and live by the law and be judged by the law. Even the ruler was under the law. It was an extraordinary concept. And the great law and the great statutes that are there laid out for us, like the Ten Commandments. I've just preached 30 sermons through the Ten Commandments. And when you compare them to the commandments of the ancient world, they are an extraordinary advance beyond anything like any other nation. So when people see you keeping the law, they'll say, this is an extraordinary nation, which indeed it was because of God. But notice, they were to benefit the nations around about them by showing them how to live. And the nations are held accountable to God and used by God. So when Nineveh sinned, God sent a prophet Jonah to Nineveh and Nineveh repented and God spared Nineveh. And Sodom, Lot was there, and Lot pleaded for Sodom. Abraham rather pleaded for Sodom. And Cyrus, the pagan, is sent as a messiah in Isaiah 45. And the nations in Amos 1 and 2, the nations who sinned, are all to be punished by God. That is, God is involved not just with Israel and Judah, God is the God of the nations and holds the nations responsible for their morality. And furthermore, God is going to gather in all the nations. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. And look at God's plans for the nations in Isaiah 2. Speaking of the great day of the coming of the Messiah, really. Isaiah 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The Bible has this negativity about the nations, but the Bible also sees that God is the God of the nations who has a plan for the salvation of the nations. That's why I call it an ambivalence about the nations. And that ambivalence you can see in the Gospel of Matthew. There's the negative and there is the positive. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to flick through very quickly some verses, but they're all in Matthew, so you can join me in picking them up. All in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4 is the first one. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what may be spoken by the, people, by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Zebulun and Naphtali are in the northern part of Israel, north part of Galilee in other words. And whenever the conquering nations came from Babylon, from Assyria, from the Greeks, they all came from the north. The first people to be conquered every time, Zebulun and Naphtali. They lived under the shadow of the opposition of the nations. Come to chapter 6, verse 32. 6.32. See Jesus' attitude to the Gentiles, where he says, Don't be anxious about, verse 31, what you drink, what you wear, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Don't live like the Gentiles. Or in chapter 10, verse 5. Chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus sends out the disciples. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so down in chapter 10, verse 18, 10, verse 18, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So there's an expected hostility between the nations and the Christians. And so in chapter 20, chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 25, 20 and verse 25. But 20 and verse 25, but Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. How do the kings of the nations rule? Like tyrants oppressively. That is not how you are to rule. Quite differently. So while you get this negative theme running through Matthew's Gospel, you also, though, get the positive theme running. Come back to chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 18. 12, verse 18, where Isaiah is being quoted. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He won't quarrel or cry aloud in any voice, etc. 
but he quotes justice to the Gentiles. And 12.21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. That is, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring justice and hope to the Gentiles. Or go to chapter 21, chapter 21 and verse 43, chapter 21 and verse 43. Jesus said to them, verse 42, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the Jews, and will be given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And chapter 21 verse... No, 24 verse 14. 24 verse 14. 24. 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations... And then the end will come. Now, a classic of this ambivalence in Matthew's Gospel is the event that happens in Matthew 15. Turn to that one because it's not just a verse, it's an event. A troubling event in verse 21 of Matthew 15. And Jesus went from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's a Gentile district, Tyre and Sidon, as Phoenician cities up in the north-west uh, of uh, Palestine. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is sorely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was killed instantly. It's an extraordinary little event, isn't it? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you would expect him to be open to everybody, but he's not open to the Gentile. But actually, he is. But he needs to get the message to them. The gospel is to the Jew first, and also to the nations. But it's to the Jew first. For a Jew to become a Christian, he becomes a true Jew. For a Gentile to become a Christian, he gives up his Gentile ways. For a Jew to become a Christian, he only has to just keep walking in the direction of the Old Testament. For a Gentile to become a Christian, he has to turn around completely, away from all his past, and go in a new direction completely. Now, when he is raised from the dead, it's finally time to tell the disciples where the whole ministry is going. It's Matthew 28 now. Matthew 28. We're getting there, friends. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The key timing for the world mission is the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Well, because the resurrection of Jesus brings the appointment. For notice the command in verse 19 is established and premised on verse 18. Go therefore and make disciples. What's the therefore therefore? The therefore is always there because it is a conclusion. A conclusion of what? Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go to all with the gospel message of salvation. See, what is his appointment? 
His appointment is the one who has given all authority in heaven and earth. You see it in three titles. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. The son of David because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is promised, King David is promised that his son will always reign over God's people. Which in Ezekiel 37 means what you can work it out to me about the coming of the Messiah being the son of David. And Ezekiel 37 is about the resurrection. In the resurrection age, King David will come to rule. And when he comes to rule as the son of David, he's going to rule as the son of God. Because in Psalm 2, the psalm about the Messiah, God says to the psalmist, to the Messiah, this day you will be my son. And to David, God promises, my son will be your son. And so Psalm 2 is about the Son of God. And when Jesus is baptised, what does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son. And when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, what does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son. The phrase Son of God means Messiah. Which is, that's the Hebrew word, the Greek word is Christ. Translated, it's the anointed one. Because kings weren't so much as crowned as anointed. Uh, Our beloved queen was anointed with oil, as all the monarchs of Britain have been for the last thousand years. When I was a small child, she was crowned. Yes, I am that old. And I was at school, and I remember it, because for weeks and weeks we had lessons about the coronation. We were very, very royalist and monarchists in those days, let me tell you. And when she was going to be crowned, they, they, when the coronation was coming, they told us that she was going to have oil poured on her head as an anointing. My childish mind was always fascinated with this possibility and I was really interested to see the sump oil kind of coming down all over her face and wondered how they protected these expensive gowns and whether it was needed to kind of squeeze the crown on that you had to have oil in your hair <laughs> and wondered what kind of, kind of, uh, kind of uh, sump oil was going to be used. When I actually saw the film later, it was a massive disappointment to find it was just one little drop which couldn't be seen. However, it's the symbol of being a king, to be anointed by the Spirit of God. And so, the Son of God is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the Anointed One. But the Son of God is not God the Son. Please note this very carefully. You see, I'm a son of God, but I'm not God the Son. I don't want you to get that confused. I hope that you're a son of God, but you're not the son of God the Son. In fact, even women can be the sons of God. That's okay in the Scriptures too. You don't have to be daughters of God. You can be sons of God. That's an interesting thing. Although once in the Scriptures it does talk about daughters of God, but I won't go into this because it's a complete irrelevance. I just thought I'd wake you up. Now, (laughs) the Son of God, though, is not God the Son. The confusion comes in this way, because God the Son became the Son of God. And so we get the two phrases confused. It's natural enough after a couple of thousand years of knowing that the true Son of God happened to be God the Son. But God the Son is the second person of the Trinity who for all eternity has been God and for all eternity will be God. That God became man and through his death and resurrection became the Son of God, the one who was God the Son. That is, God the Son became the Christ. God the Son became the Messiah. God the Son was anointed. God the Son became the Son of God. But he was also the Son of Man. Psalm 8 speaks of the Son of Man that God has given the whole world to, the whole universe to, And Daniel 7 speaks of the Son of Man. I'm a little lost now. Have we covered the Son of Man in our seminars yet? Yes? No? Yes. 
Some of us have more clearly than others. I can see either that or some of you come from those cultures where this means yes. The Son of Man, remember in Daniel 7, when the books are opened, the great day of judgment happens, and then suddenly, as my American friends would say, out of left field, there comes this, this man. Where's he come from? Who is he? What's his name? Nothing is said about him other than he comes in the clouds to the Ancient of Days and the Ancient of Days then gives him all authority to rule over all nations for all time. And Jesus, when he's on trial, in Mark chapter 14, he's asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus replied, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is the Son of Man to whom is given all authority to rule over all nations for all time. Therefore, what should you do, my disciples? Go into all the nations and make them my disciples. For now... He rules over the nations. Psalm 2, he's given it as an inheritance. Daniel 7, he's given all nations for all time. And you've looked too at Psalm 110, haven't you? Where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I bring all things in subjection under your feet. And this happens in his death and in his resurrection. For by his death and resurrection, he rises up to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, who rules over all nations for all times. So how does the resurrection age impact the world age? Why? By sending out the disciples of Jesus into the world to call upon all nations everywhere to acknowledge Jesus as the King, as the ruler of the universe. We are in the resurrection age now in this present world. We who have been born again and raised up to sit with Christ in the heavenly realms, we're in this world physically. And what is the reason for this world continuing now? Why? It's so that this world will come to acknowledge Jesus as king. That's why the world continues now. That's why we are awaiting. But now is a time for us to have a sing, isn't it? 